Thank you, Mark. In our series on Church 101, we're describing what the Bible says about the church in this time of transition um, uh, and, and how our church has changed over the years and why we do certain things according to the scriptures, uh, how, how we have navigated some hard things over the years. Uh, all of those things are a part of our discussion of Church 101. And uh, we are weaving the history of our church into that description. Last week, Lewis talked about resolving conflicts. But, but what about conflicts that don't get resolved? Today we're going to be studying church discipline. Scripture actually says quite a bit about church discipline, and some people would regard it as an uncomfortable topic. Uh, that's why everybody went out of town this week. And where's Lewis when I need him? <laughs> um, it is uncomfortable in some ways, but it doesn't have to be. But it's, it's just true. If there is open sin in the body, do we ignore it? If someone is, is, is heading down a self-destructive path, do we engage them? Or worse, do we cover it over like the Corinthians did? So in, in our early years of our church, we um, had maybe two situations where we should have stepped in but didn't. Uh, we weren't as intentional about member care as we should have been. One time a family was gone and we didn't even know until later that there had been a divorce. Um, and, and there were things that we could have done, we thought, to have helped. But we had a brand new elder board. We were new at this. And uh, we had to face a hard truth. We failed them. We learned from that. Scripture is clear that God expects more from us as a church family when people are hurting. Uh, everybody, I think, has probably heard Groucho Marx's statement that he wouldn't stoop, uh, I'm sorry, he wouldn't belong to any social club that would stoop to accept him as a member. Mark Dever, author of Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, argues you should never join a church that wouldn't be willing to kick you out. What well, now he's saying that for effect because there's a big gap between what people perceive church discipline is and what it actually is, biblical church discipline. I mean, when you think of the concept of church discipline, what comes to your mind? Is this what you think of? I would suggest to you that it's closer to this. We're going to talk about what church, what church discipline actually looks like in Scripture. Uh, we do practice church discipline, but you may not realize it's something we practice every day. It's a part of our walk with the Lord. So you're probably thinking, well, how is he defining that? Well, that's part of what we're going to be uh, talking about it is a process and we're going to study what the process is and the process does have an end which you don't want to go to 
And I think probably over the, all the 34 plus years of our church, we have gone to the end of that process, maybe five times. Uh, but first, I want to, object, to answer a common objection. How many of you have ever heard anybody say, Jesus said, judge not? Who do you think you are to judge someone? Right? How can you disagree with that? Jesus said it. Well, this is one of the most uh, abused verses of the Bible. First of all, who gave the guidelines for church discipline? I think it was Jesus. Secondly, Matthew 7, 1, judge not, is totally misused in its context. So most people misuse it in a logically self-defeating way. Uh, if somebody brings up this objection, you can say to them, excuse me, when you told me to judge not, were you judging me? That may not be the best way to win someone, but it sure does feel good. When Jesus said judge not, he was warning against a hypocritical and hypercritical attitude. And if you read the verses after Matthew 7, 1, Jesus is saying, don't, don't judge hypocritically. Make sure that it, you don't have first a beam in your own eye, you take that out, and then, Jesus says, you will be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, biblically, this as an objection against church discipline, right before Jesus talks about church discipline, is very, well, it's uninformed. So, uh, just let's shove that objection aside because we want to do instead what Jesus said. Here is the meaning of the word discipline in the Bible. Let's define the Greek term. It, is, it has both negative and positive meanings. Mostly, it's a positive word. It describes child training overwhelmingly. It's not corrective or, or, or punitive, like a parent who says, I'm going to discipline you, but rather it's preventive. It's formative, like a parent says, who says, uh, let me help you do that. Let me train you to do that to, so that we can avoid that problem in the future. Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is, when you, if you were to consider biblical discipline as a fruit, as a piece of fruit, when you bite into it, it doesn't taste like bitter, angry legalism. It tastes nourishing and sweet like peace and righteousness. One more thing. Uh, one huge area of discipline in Scripture is the area of sound doctrine read Hebrews, read 2 Peter, 2 John, other epistles as well. I mean, if I were to stray from biblical truth as a teacher of the word here, or started claiming that my opinions came from God as my authority, that it was directly from God, the church leadership should not let that go. Uh, when I say to you, it is written, that's one thing. When I give you my opinion as scripture, that's entirely something else. 
Paul even makes the argument about himself in Galatians. Even if I were to say something contrary to what you've already been received, already have received, I would be accursed. So, um, before we invite someone to speak here at the church who hasn't spoken here before, the elders um, always give approval. They check it out. That's part of their job. I have taught on, uh, and oh, by the way, I spoke at um, the Mountain Fellowship Church PCA plant a few weeks ago. And before I spoke there, um, the uh, elder, uh, it required elder approval because I'm not a covenant reformed theologian. And so uh, the elders had to get approval, which did not bother me a bit. In fact, I, I appreciated it. Uh, it seemed to me that it spoke well of Mountain Fellowship that they were checking me out before I spoke there. Does that make sense to you? So uh, doctrine is a big area of making sure that, that uh, uh, what is being taught is sound and true. And false teachers were to be disciplined. When I, now, when I taught on the idea of church discipline before, years ago, uh, and we do cover this as a part of every new member's class, so everybody who's a member of this church has been taught some of the things that I'm going to be saying today. It's very important that you understand the big picture of church discipline, not just the negative uh, part. Instead, it's important to understand the formative part. So, you ready to jump in? Okay, we're going to do that. Here are the six steps of the discipline process. Church, one, one-on-one, two-on-one, church, and world. What's up there twice? Is that an accident? No, it's not. It has to do with formation, different aspects. For the church has to do with where the body of Christ together preempts. We'll talk about that. One, where the spirit and the word correct. One-on-one, which is where you start with one another with another person because there's a problem that you see in their life. Two-on-one is when they didn't listen to you with a one-on-one. And there's greater leverage for the one another's, plural. And then again, the church with the body of Christ around you. And then the world, and I'll explain what I mean by that, where there is concern for their salvation. So this is how I see the discipline uh, process playing out in, in Scripture. And Matthew 18 comes into, into play at the third step. But the first step, uh, I'm just putting this in here for the sake of completeness because I believe it's part of the big picture of how God forms us. And the reason why I include it this way is because this is the way the word discipline is used. Okay? It's the way the word discipline is used. First of all, church, this is preventative. It's preemptive. Collectively, as a body, we encourage one another to grow. I mean, you check out the one another's in Scripture. Collectively, we encourage one another to grow, but individually, we are responsible for one another. Hebrews 10 tells us, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. You're going to hear that passage in Hebrews 10 quoted a lot in, in Church 101 because it's important. It's 
part of what God has called us to do to be involved in each other's lives. We looked a few weeks ago at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, where the job description of the church is laid out, and it's clear there that the body generates its own growth. The proper working of each individual part, where the body grows itself in love. So, um, who generates the growth of the body? The body does. We all do. Proverbs would describe it as iron sharpening iron. My guess is that you've probably never thought of this step as church discipline because we always tend to use the word discipline negatively. But in terms of growth, this is inoculation. This happens when you don't even know it. Um, Let me put it this way. It may be in the formal teaching in the worship service. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to get me to think differently about something, being transformed in the renewing of my mind. And that preemptively deals with a problem you didn't even know that you would have at some point in the future. And, and after that teaching or preaching, because you now think differently, you won't have that problem. It won't materialize. Or it may not be formal teaching. It may just be informal instruction or, or discussion in a growth group, accountability in discipleship, a pavilion picnic, a, a men's hike, a Titus II group, ladies' luncheon. Uh, someone says something that causes you to see things differently from a biblical perspective and it changes your thinking patterns and God uses those moments for spiritual inoculation as we grow together building up one another a lot of literature these days call this calls this spiritual formation the Bible calls it discipline and it, it's it's covert it, you may not, don't, it may be that the only per, person who ever knows about it because he knows what would have happened is God. You don't know what's going on. But this is the body of Christ being the body of Christ, just growing together. Now, that is the first step. Here's the second one. One. The first step was preventative, but the, the next steps are corrective. This step is where you recognize, okay, there is a sin that I I see now in my heart. There's a temptation that I'm engaged in, and the Spirit prompts you to do something about it. Listen. Listen. Because you value pleasing God more than you value having the sin please you. You value pleasing God more than you value having the sin please you. In this case, discipline begins and ends at self-discipline. This is the one part. In Galatians 5.23, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control or self-discipline. And I want you to notice that this is the fruit of the what? Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. It's self-control in the sense 
that it's not dependent upon other human beings for that control. But the context makes it clear that it's, it's the individual working with the Word and the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. Same word for self-control is used. You, Paul calls it discipline. In Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation. We've talked about this before. It doesn't mean, he doesn't say work for your own salvation. It's within you, incarnated in your life. Work it out. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is you and God. In terms of humans, it's one. It's, the church is uninvolved in this in an explicit, clear way. But the, the word picture of obedience, remember we've talked about what the word obey means. Literally, it means to hear under. It means that the word of God is over you and you hear under God's word. Under the word, placing yourself as submissive to that which is authoritative over you. So uh, this is, what, this is, this is in, in this case, addressing sin in my life begins and ends at self-discipline. Now, let, let me just be clear about this. This should be our norm. This should be what the Christian life looks like right here. And I would add from other scriptures, it's wise to have other relationships, like a discipleship relationship. You may want to seek accountability, which I think would fit in here as well. Uh, Mark Dever said, we cannot live the Christian life alone. Absolutely true. Okay, so we, we have, let's review what we have said before about the three resources for Christian growth. Okay, God has given us three resources for Christian growth. Okay, they are the Word of God over us, the Spirit of God within us, and the body of Christ around us. Okay, the Word of God over us, the Spirit of God within us, the body of Christ around us here's the question what if you reject the first two if you ignore the word or if you tell the holy spirit uh no spirit leave me alone and you suppress that by the way he won't not if you're truly his and you're going to be miserable james 1 describes the outcome i'm going to read it to you james 1 14 and 15 just listen each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So here's the picture. Sin that is kept alive and nurtured on the inside and not dealt with will eventually work its way to the outside. So if the sinner suppresses the word of God over me and doesn't listen to tunes out the Spirit of God within me, then after this, the sin works its way out, the body of Christ around us steps in. 
in the first two steps, nobody else is involved. Um, but in the next steps, someone else who loves you enough to say something steps in. And I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 18 if you're not already there. I want to describe to you first the context of what's going on in Matthew 18. I think the context here is very important. The disciples were concerned about greatness. Not spiritual greatness, self-centered greatness. Notice verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There, there it is. They want to be number one. Jesus' answer in verses 2 through 5 is the way to greatness is to become like one of these little ones, the children. And his point is not that children are innocent or sinless. They're not. His point is that children are utterly dependent. Utterly dependent. So, in the next verses, Jesus transitions from physical childhood to spiritual childhood, spiritual immaturity, and teaches about keeping spiritual little ones from stumbling in verses 6 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 14, he calls them sheep. If 99 are safe within the fold, but one strays away, one of the little ones strays away, the shepherd pursues the lost sheep to bring him back into the fold. Look at verse 14. So it is not the will of your Father in, who is in heaven that any... Uh, that one of these little ones perish. And then Jesus immediately gives the process for how to pursue a lost sheep to bring him back into the fold with the words, if your, brother's, if your brother sins. And then if you skip down, he concludes this section in verses 21 and 22 with Peter's question, how often should I forgive? And, and, of course, Peter's answer, he thought he was being generous because ordinarily the Jews would say three times was the max. Seven times. And Jesus said, no, 70, seven times 70. It's just, it's, his point is, it's not limited. Forgiveness, there's no limit on forgiveness. So, um, uh, that, that is the context. There's no limit on forgiveness for those who are truly repentant. Now, I hope you get this. If that's the context of Matthew 18, then greatness is not lifting myself up. Greatness is lifting everyone up and not leaving any behind. You get that? Greatness is not lifting myself up. Greatness is making sure that no one's left behind. And embedded in this is the process for leaving no one behind, when it gets to this point, and here's where we go in verse 15, let's read, I'll read it to you. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And then listen to this. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more witnesses um, with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. The implication is, 
If he listens, you've won your brother. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Again, if he listens, you've won your brother. But if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's a hard thing to go into these steps. So here's where we are. The next step is one-on-one. And from this step forward, the circle of information is not just the sinner, but the person who sees the sin or wonders about the sin. And that circle of information, one more person is added to it. And the goal is always, as you go through, that the circle of information does not widen. Okay? The goal is always that it stays confined and private as the person is repentant before the Lord and the sheep returns to the fold. So if you see a brother or sister sinning because you love them, you need to say something. But before you go to them, there are some filtering questions that I would suggest that you think through. First of all, and these, these are informed in my thinking by Romans 12 through 16. First of all, make sure that what you are concerned about with your brother or your sister is not one of your personal hot buttons or a weaker brother issue, one of those gray areas over which Christians disagree. So there's this kind of an ethical triage that you measure things by. Is it, is it a big thing? Is it something big? In other words, is it relatively unimportant or is it something that is going to take them down a road? Secondly, if it's something against you, ask yourself, did they intend to hurt me or intend to do this against me? Am I being overly sensitive here? Are they even aware of it? In one case where they were aware of it, I've been amazed at this one. That I've been amazed that Paul looks at those preachers in Rome who were seeking to cause him distress in his imprisonment, and he just lets it go. The Lord's going to deal with him. He chooses to let it go. There's some things like that. So answering those, that question in your heart may change the way that you approach things. And I want to say this. Make sure that, it, that if there is a problem that you believe before God needs to be dealt with, that you don't gossip, that you don't go to five people and say, you know, I've got a problem with this. How do I deal with it? Um, I, uh, uh, if, if you need advice, come to one of the elders of the church and we'll, or, or one of the WMC members. We'll, we'll talk it through together. And if there's another side to this that you don't know about, um, or, or if things are uncertain, we want to make sure that people are protected from rumors, from gossip. Okay, so uh, you go to your brother. And the parallel in Luke 17 puts a little bit more, cl- more uh, color to the process. There the Greek word rebuke can mean to rebuke cautiously or to rebuke tentatively. It's, it's more like, in, in some cases, it may be like this. My friend, 
this is what I perceived. Did I see this right? It seems like your teasing with her is, is a, it just doesn't, it seems like it crossed the threshold. Where's your, where's your brain? Where's your thinking? You know, did, am I seeing this wrong? Or um, if, if there's another explanation, I'm, I'm all ears. And it may be that your loving concern is the answer to prayer for a sin or a thought pattern that is burdening them, and they're so glad you, talk, you came to them. Will it be awkward? Yes, <laughs> it will. I'm going to lay a little guilt on you here, on all of us here. How much do you love them? Because confronting somebody is hard, especially when they're your friend. And you don't want to risk losing a friend. But if you listen, you've gained a brother. And when I taught on this years ago, I told you this illustration. Some of you will probably remember this. Um, you know that we've been involved in, in the Officers Christian Fellowship for many years. Uh, and uh, uh, 36 or 7, 36 years. And uh, in those early years, I was teaching at the, their retreat center in Pennsylvania, and uh, there was a Marine major, looked kind of like that, Dudley Do-Right, with a jaw and everything, and uh, he was riding his 10-year-old son so hard that all of us could see what was going to happen. It was almost inevitable that in time he was going to lose his son. So one of my friends uh, came to me and said, uh, Gary, don't you think somebody ought to say something to him? And I said, yes, I, I think somebody ought to say something to him. Um, and then he said, Gary, I think you have the credibility with him to speak to him. Now, I'm thinking my friend, Larry, is a Vietnam combat veteran, he's a full colonel, he's a Harvard PhD, and he's the academic dean at West Point. I'm thinking he ought, I mean, credibility? I don't think so. He's got the credibility. But before I could get anything out, uh, and sputter an objection. <laughs> he, he added something that I've never forgotten. And, and uh, it just hit me to the core. He said, some things are worth the risk of losing a friendship. Some things are worth the risk of losing a friendship. Maintaining a friendship is not the highest goal. Having no awkwardness is not the highest goal. The other person's good is a much higher goal. Does that make sense to you? It's, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Um, so some things are worth the risk of losing a friendship. Now, at the moment, I was more envisioning losing teeth. And I asked him if I could speak to him. And I met him, I uh, said, can I, can I, we'll meet 15 minutes. And he, of course, he gave it to me in military time. 
at the gazebo. And uh, so I walked to the gazebo. He was already there. And he said, first words out of his mouth. I've never forgotten them. Have I been a bad boy? <laughs> and I said, yeah, you really have. And we need to talk. And, oh, he was so open and wanted to know how he could change and love his son well. He just, he, he and his son were from two different universes and he just didn't know how to make the connection with his son. And um, that guy and his wife have been my friends now for 30 years. Uh, I gained a brother and kept my teeth. So, if they listen, it stops here. Now, sanctification for them doesn't stop here. There's forgiveness, there's discipleship, there's accountability that you and your friend work out so that they can be released from whatever thought patterns or habits have, en have ensnared them so that they were not responding to the word over and the spirit within, and but help them extract from that sin. And there are several pa passages that describe this process. But what if they still do not listen? Then there's the next step that is described in this passage. Up to this point, things have been kept totally private, but now it's wise to get a church leader involved as a witness. Uh, this is an Old Testament principle of two or more witnesses. I know people think, Lord, wherever two or three are gathered together, there I am in your midst. No, the Lord's with us in our midst. We're, you know, if there's only one. <laughs> That's not about a church gathering. Where two or three are gathered together is about church discipline. So here they are, the Old Testament principle of two or three witnesses uh, making sure that the evidence is true and nobody is bearing false witness. So, um, and by the way, it, this does not mean that they are witnesses to the sin, but they're witnesses to the conversation and, and to, to the evidence. And it may be wise if you're de dealing with a male. Uh, obviously, I think you would take an elder with you. If you're dealing with a female, with another lady, a godly woman, maybe a WMC member. There are ways of doing that well. Um, but here, what, what's going on here is that you go to them and you ask them the same questions again because the sin is there as, as you see it. And in this step, the leverage of appropriate peer pressure is added for, as a catalyst for change. So it's, 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 at this point, it's, it's also, it, it's a two-on-one conversation but it's also protective of the person who's being confronted. Now, I'll explain why. Because the witness, the witness may say, uh, wait a minute. Um, this is really a clash of personalities between the two of you that you need to resolve. It's not a sin issue. Or they may say, you know, they are denying this, and the evidence is really not clear. So at this point, you drop it, and they try to heal their friendship. Meanwhile, the other person is on notice that they need to be careful in their walk with Jesus. Is it awkward? Yeah, it is. 
but it's a matter of loving them enough. Or the witness may say, you know, this, this is indeed a sin. It's not a vendetta. This, there's something really bad going on here, and the evidence is clear. Now, keep in mind that if there is real sin, but it's not ag- admitted by the sinner, there may be multiple conversations that happen at this level. There's no limit of times that's set on the number of times you can go to that person. You'd apply wisdom to the decision, to the situation. And if they are listening to you and considering what you say, I think you're still at this step. It's when they stop listening to you that it moves to the next step. And if it moves to the next step, that would involve the elders of the church if they haven't already become involved. Which leads me to a very crucial observation. Um, We're going to be selecting elders again soon in our church. And we're going to be talking about qualifications in the Church 101 series. Um, But one rationale for this has to do with this process. Listen to me carefully. If you trust the leadership of the church that looks into the matter, if you trust the leadership then even though you don't have the information or the evidence or you may have questions, do you trust these people? And if so, then you will trust their decision without widening the circle of gossip. Does that make sense? So, yes, we've looked at this. This is not a problem. Or, yes, we've looked at this, and it is a problem. Uh, We're not going to share the details with you, but... It's, uh, we're moving forward and challenging them on this. So, do you trust the leadership of the church? They know more than you do about the situation, and the leadership is accountable before God for how they handle it. Uh, So, and from my standpoint, um, as a church leader, I will say this. Every stage you go deeper into this process, the more vulnerable you make yourself to be misunderstood by people who don't know all the facts. But hey, that's, that's just part of the way that that is. So next, you tell it to the church. And as I said, in the 34 years of this church, I think we've only gotten to this step five times. Now, that's, not, that's not a promise of one every seven years. That's, we don't know what the future holds for us. Um, but the, the goal at each step is not to go to the next step right the goal at each step is not to go to the next step if he refuses to listen even to them tell it to the church and here the main contact you have with that person should be to move them towards repentance tell it to the church um they should not take communion that has been the universal as i was studying this that has been the universal practice of the biblical church from the very beginning. They should not take communion as one aspect of it because according to 1 Corinthians 11, those who eat with sinful hearts are judged severely by God. So it was for their spiritual protection uh, rather than having them partake of the symbol of Christ's death, the bread and the cup, it was for their spiritual protection while unrepentant so that they didn't make a mockery of the Lord's table. 
So you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3 that believers are not to eat with the unrepentant brother or sister under discipline. And the meal described at Corinth, I believe, was the love feast, which was the, what the church ate before partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, can someone who is under church discipline remain here for the worship service and worship with us? In most cases, I would welcome that. If they have the spirit within them, they're still exposed to the word over them and the body around them. But it may depend upon the nature of the sin. Um, if, if you have an affair where there are two families involved, there needs to be more protections put in place. Uh, so we, w- we would just look at it situation by situation. And here's the role of the church in Tell It to the Church that the church is to pray. And the church, who ha- those in the church who have a relationship with them are to love them, love them towards repentance. Which intensifies the leverage of positive peer pressure. Exactly how do you tell it to the church? I don't think we've done this well uh, in a couple of cases in the past. Like I said, we've only had a handful of cases. I don't want it to go to the next hand. When we were tiny, the first case that we ever had was told to the adult Sunday school class because there was only one adult Sunday school class. And uh, all the adults in the church were in the class. And we didn't want the small children there. So that worked pretty well when we were that size. Our practice now is that after a worship service, we would announce that there was a meeting to discuss a family matter, and the members are asked to stay if they can, and we will resume, while people leave, we will resume in about five minutes. And then we would uh, come with prayer and tears. And prayer. And then prayer. And we've been here. If your brother or sister listens to the call repentance from a loving church as jesus says you've you have won your brother but again what if they don't listen well here you're not enlarging the circle of knowledge when he says uh, that uh, um, you were to regard them as a gentile and a tax collector You're not enlarging the circle of knowledge beyond the church, but you have to regard the person as part of the world in the spiritual sense, that that is their domain. Paul called, you know what Paul calls them? So-called believers. That's his term. They're no longer assumed to be Christians just because they say they are. Because they're rejecting the word of God over them, the spirit of God within them, and the body of Christ around them. So Paul says they are so-called believers. Um, By this point, they almost certainly have removed themselves from church fellowship. uh, That would be what what would almost always happen, I would think. Uh, And we would remove them from the church role after time. And your prayer for them, here's the deal. Your prayer for them is no longer for repentance, but for salvation that they would receive Jesus Christ as their Savior 
they would listen to the word of God over them, the spirit of God within them, the body of Christ around them as new creatures. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And when he says be, they're going to be considered as tax collectors, guess who the Holy Spirit used to write this gospel? Matthew. What was his job? Tax collector. One of the people that, that uh, illegally extorted funds uh, in that, that was just the norm in the Roman Empire. So, um, what if the prodigal comes home? Because the prodigal son was no longer recognizable as a son while he was in the pig pen. But what if he comes home? Well then, like the father, the church welcomes him with open arms and love and treats him with grace and forgives. I had a professor at seminary who pastored a Latino church outside of Dallas in a smaller community. And uh, one of the men in the church was living in open sin. It was, the evidence was clear. I mean, it, it, was, it was open sin. He was doing it. And the church ignored it for a long period of time. Everybody in the Hispanic community knew about it because he was a prominent man in the community. Finally, they got serious about what the Word of God says and uh, went through this process and he was unrepentant and he was removed from the church. The result was that the people in the town saw a testimony of Christians that really intended to practice what they preached, literally. And from that point on, the church began to grow. The very first time we went through this, the very first time, as I said, it, we, we, we told it to the church in the adult Sunday school class because we only had one and we didn't want the children there. Well, that day, we had a family visiting. And the husband and wife were sitting right there in that church where in the, in the Sunday school class. And uh, I thought, well, we'll never see them again. But they came back. And they came back. And they stayed. And one day, a couple of years later, uh, they've now moved away um, uh, because of his job. But one day, a couple of years later, I asked, his name was Randy. I, I asked him, Randy, what, what caused you to... I remember that you were there on that day. I've always wanted to ask you, why did you stay <laughs> after, after hearing that? And he said, he said what, what I sat there and I thought was, wow, these people are really serious about their faith. I want to be a part of that. Now, that's not necessarily the way you want to communicate that message, <laughs> but that's how he took it. So why should you do this? Why should we be, in, be involved this way? Number one, because Jesus said to. That's enough. And secondly, because Jesus is in love with the church. And he pursues what is best for her. We read in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church 
gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's what Jesus wants. I'm going to give you some closing observations. Um, and uh, thank you for your patience with this. This is a hard topic. This is a description of a, flow, of, a, of a process. It's not a flow chart, by the way. It's not necessarily one size fits all, fits all cases. Paul dealt with some situations slightly differently, whether it's Euodius and Syntyche or the badly motivated pastors in Rome or the sinful situation in Corinth. Um, but it all heads in the same trajectory of loving them enough to confront, to challenge to repentance, and then have there be reconciliation, forgiveness, restoration. The process highlights the importance of choosing church leaders whose judgment you trust, because not everybody is going to know all details. Now, as, here's what I want you to look at as we close. As you look back over this, If you reflect on these steps, we are all, always in this process, right? This is body life together. When are you ever not in this process? Because discipline is overwhelmingly positive. 99.9% should be in those first three steps. Actually, it all should be. It's called sanctification. It's called spiritual growth. And if we have to go to the last three steps, the motive should be restoration, bringing that sheep back into the fold, and hopefully not going to the next step while keeping information as private as possible. There's so many things in church life that you can look at and say, you know, that didn't need to happen. That just didn't need to happen. Because when we look at biblical guidelines and we follow what the Bible says, we minimize problems. We're never going to be perfect, but we minimize problems. A paper cut doesn't have to become a wound. A wound doesn't have to become septic and then fatal. Our goal is to immerse and invest ourselves in growing together with the Word of God over us, the Spirit of God within us, and the body of Christ around us, practicing the one another's of Scripture. Not a comfortable study today, I know that, but it's definitely a part of Church 101, and it's saturated with the truth of Ephesians 4, and I'm going to close with this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Lord, I thank you for your word. 
Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for